Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. When we were going through Matthew's gospel, we saw in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus Christ made a remarkable promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Acts, that's exactly what we see, the birth of the church. But the question is, what does the church of Jesus Christ look like? If he has promised to build a church, if he has promised to accomplish that particular work, then how do we know that that is being accomplished and what does it look like? Well, we saw that the, spirit was, or that the church was composed of believers, that the church is a body of redeemed people, and that those people are indwelt and empowered by the Spirit. And that's really what we looked at last week. The idea that the Holy Spirit, in the life of the body, enables us to be a church that works. Not a church that works for our salvation or toward our salvation. Not a church that adds anything to our salvation. But a church that because of our salvation, because the Spirit is present in our lives, we have the ability to do what God has called us to do. Uh, on our own, obedience is not even an option. Paul says that before Christ, all of his righteous deeds, all of the good things that he had done, and there were a number of them from a religious perspective, he says all of those things were like filthy rags. They were useless, they were wasteful, they were dirty. The author of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not difficult, not highly unlikely, impossible to please God. And yet with faith, through salvation, God has enabled us through the power of his spirit, to live lives of obedience to him. That is a remarkable thing. To know that you and I are not held captive by our circumstances. That because the spirit is within us, we have the power to produce things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, not because of anything that's going on around us, not because we've somehow summoned the strength from deep inside of us, but because that is what the spirit does in the lives of his people. And we saw that. What is it that changes these men from the often stubborn, sometimes cowering disciples of the Gospels uh, to these bold pillars of the church that we see through the book of Acts? It's a work of the Spirit. And then we saw that that Spirit gifts the body. He gives gifts to the body for two main purposes, to glorify God and to edify or strengthen the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to each one individually as he wills. And because the Spirit gifts believers and because God in his sovereignty oversees those gifts, that means that there is no gift and therefore no believer who is unnecessary. Each one of us is critical to the right function of the body right here at Chapel City Church. We saw that the gifts are meant to be used in love because without love, even the most spectacular, miraculous gifts are useless, eternally worthless. And we saw that they're meant to be used in a way that reflects the order and design of the God that gave them. That the gifts are given to be used in a way that facilitates worship and never points attention back to the one who has the gift in the first place. Today we're going to look at the closing verses of Acts chapter 2. 2 verse 47, or 42 to 47. And we're going to see today what the priorities of the church are. As the church of Christ is called into being, what is it that occupies their attention? So if you're not there already, find your way to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 42. This is what God's Word says. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, there are a bunch of ways to do church, and we're inundated with ideas and pamphlets and flyers and seminars that would tell us that there's a new way, a better way. God, I pray that as we come together as a church, we would be committed to worshiping you in the way that you've called us to, that our priorities would be your priorities, because that's what you've promised to work through, and that's what you've promised to bless. And so, Lord, as we gather, help us to be wholly submissive to you and your word. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things. And along with the psalmist, we know that we need your help to do that. Uh, Spiritual understanding isn't a matter of our own creativity or ingenuity, Lord. It's a matter of the Spirit working in our lives to move us from blindness to sight. And so we ask that you would help us as we do that today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. No one wants to be ordinary. No one wants to be normal. No one wants to be boring. I think the way the kids say it, no one wants to be basic anymore. I'll get that verified when the high schoolers show up in second service. (laughs) We're pushed toward the idea that you are unique and you have to demonstrate your uniqueness. Now, part of that is absolutely true. We went back to the idea of the spiritual gifts last week, and every believer is absolutely uniquely gifted by the Spirit, absolutely uniquely placed in a body of Christ to do what God has designed them to do there. But what happens when the church is involved in this constant search for what comes next? This constant push toward the next big thing, the next major program, the next shift that's going to bring in the people. What if the most attractive thing about the church was its stability? What if the church that's the most countercultural was the one that was steadfast and unchanging in her priorities through all the decades? I think what we see in Acts 2 are the fundamental norms that define regular Christianity. These are the things that mark the church in every age. I mean, the language changes, the clothing changes, the songs absolutely change, but there are things that define what ordinary church is. You and I can go to a body of believers all over the world and see the same priorities show up in God-fearing, God-honoring churches all across the globe, and it's a remarkable thing. It's a freeing thing because it means we don't have to chase after the next big idea. We're just called to be faithful to what God has told us his church ought to look like. So today that's what we're going to look at. We're going to open Acts chapter 2 and we're going to see the church's priorities. And we're going to see that as the church is convicted of certain priorities, that they practice certain things and that in practicing certain things, they produce certain things. So that's where we're going. So let's open up Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see that ordinary can be a remarkable thing. And as we open up verse 42, there's been a a significant thing that has happened. In fact, look back one verse to verse 41. Luke writes, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Remember, the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. They speak in the tongues of those gathered people. They're men from nations all over the earth, and they hear them in their own language. And Peter preaches this remarkable sermon. He, He preaches a sermon that convicts them of their sin, that calls them to repentance, that challenges them to place their faith in Jesus Christ, the living Savior that they put to death through the hands of lawless men. And people are pierced. The Holy Spirit does a work. He transforms hearts, and 3,000 are saved that day. In a moment, the church explodes into existence. 
And immediately after that, Luke describes not just the birth of the church, he describes what that church looked like. He talks about their priorities and what they did, what they practiced together. And that's what we come to in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves. The church devotes themselves. They engage themselves. They pour their attention and efforts into these things. And when it says the church, this is not the super spiritual church. This is not the uh, A-level disciples. This is not the super committed. This is simply what the church did. This is what the church as a body was consistently and continually devoting themselves to. And the first priority is teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that's a pretty beautiful statement. Because for one thing, we wouldn't think that these, that these apostles would have much to teach about until the work of the Spirit. But remember how Matthew closed his gospel. It hasn't been that long ago, but it feels like a long time. Jesus gave them a command. He said, go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we see in verse 41. And then he said, in teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what we see are the disciples of Christ doing exactly what Christ calls them to do through the power of the Spirit. A hallmark, a cornerstone, a foundational principle of the church of Jesus Christ has always been teaching. Sound doctrine has always been critical to defining who the church is. And the reason for that is because you and I don't bring wisdom on our own. We talk about that all the time. On our own, we do not enter into spiritual scenarios with some kind of natural instinct toward God. In the flesh, we are blind, we are dead in our sins, we are slaves to sin, there is nothing free about us to find the things of God. We are desperately in need of some wisdom that comes from outside of ourselves, and so that's exactly what this is. This is the apostles teaching what Christ has made known to them. That's why uh, when you look all the way through your New Testament, this idea of the Word of God, the teaching of God passed down through the apostles, it's described as this nourishing thing, this feeding thing. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, as Paul's writing to his young protege, he says, In pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the good doctrine which you've been following. That's why in 2 Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, he says, In order to be faithful, you need to preach the word both in season and out. While we don't have the apostles today, that office does not carry on. What we do have is the apostles' teaching. That's why when we as a church come together, when the church, not just this church, comes together, this book, the Bible, sits at the center of our teaching. We don't come and we don't open up a devotional book. We don't just read through a song and highlight lyrics that meant something to us. Um, we don't read stories. Those are parts and pieces maybe of what we do. But everything that we teach is founded on the Word. And that's true in every context that we teach in. It's true in our Bible studies. It's true in our small groups. It's true in our youth groups. Do we use tools and resources? Absolutely. But the foundation of everything that we teach comes out of this word. And that's because this word has a universal source. At the end of the day, it's not Luke that's writing the book of Acts, although Luke is the human author. It's not Paul that is ultimately responsible for the content of those letters to the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Philippians. We know that 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. That the Holy Spirit carries these men along and ensures that what they write is exactly in every word, every phrase, every paragraph, and every chapter 
exactly what God intended. And because God himself, because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, that means that Scripture has certain characteristics. It means that it's true. If God is truth, then his word is truth. It means that if God is the ultimate author of Scripture, that this word is authoritative in our life, that this book has the ability to define how we are to act, how we are to respond to God and to one another. And it produces certain things in us. The word is central because, again, in that same passage, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We continue to preach the word because this is what corrects us, it's what comforts us, it's what equips us ultimately so that the man of God may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. On our own, we lack a whole bunch. On our own, we don't have the resources, the wisdom to carry out the ministry that God has called us to do. This is the tool that he uses to do that. This is the book, this is the word that equips and trains and corrects and refines the body of Christ so that they can carry on the work of Christ. And after teaching, we're given the next priority. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The church that Christ promised to build marks fellowship as a priority, but what do we think of when we hear fellowship? Well, we have a fellowship hall, and the fellowship hall is where the coffee and the donuts are. Or maybe you think of fellowship as a men's barbecue. There was certainly fellowship there. There was an amen or two out there. Maybe fellowship is the church potluck. Maybe fellowship is when we have people over for a meal at our house. Turns out when we think of fellowship, food is very, very often related to our idea of fellowship. Well, the word for fellowship there means partnership, sharing. It means to hold something in common. And when we talk about the fellowship that they're devoted to, what we're really talking about is the prioritization of the unity of the church. This is a church that is bonded deeply together more than just physically together, spiritually united. The Church of Christ makes unity a priority, but what are we unified around? First of all, the church is unified around their salvation. That's why we started where we did in Acts chapter 1. It's why Paul, when he, opens, uh, when he writes that letter to the Ephesians, he, he talks in Ephesians 4 about all those ones of the church, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one, 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 one after another, to demonstrate the unity of the church. And it's why when Paul talks to that church, he doesn't say be diligent to create unity within the body, does he? He says be diligent to preserve that unity that God has already created. And remember who he's talking to here. Remember what church this is describing. This is the church that has just come on the scene in Jerusalem. And these are not just people that have been friends and neighbors for a bunch of years. A huge portion of this church is made up of believers that are gathered from all over the place who came to town for a feast and found something much more significant. And now in all their distinction, no matter where they're from, they find this unity in their salvation in Jesus Christ. That is where they find their identity. And what else is the church unified around? The church is not only unified in our salvation, the church is unified in our purpose. In Philippians chapter 2, a place that we looked at significantly as we were looking through the work of Christ on the cross, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The idea that the church is supposed to be bound together with one purpose, one heart, as if we were thinking with one mind, not thinking the same way, not uniformity, but unity as in we're all pulling in the same direction. 
If you look at Philippians 1, what brought him more joy than anything was their continued partnership in the gospel with him from the first day until now. It's the fact that the church is doing the same work together. And what was the singular mission that Christ gave the church? It's to make disciples. We find that the church that's unified is unified in their purpose. It's very easy for us to get distracted. It's very easy for us to have our attention pulled in a thousand different directions, especially when those directions are a lot of good things. And there are a lot of good things that we can do where the church finds strength and unity is where our priorities are the same. And that's why we put the mission statement, the priorities of this church in front of you. We know that this church exists and that we are calling all people to receive, demonstrate, and declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. There's a reason we put that on socks and gave it to you a couple of years ago. And magnets. It's not just because we needed something to do with our feet. It's because we want to be pulling in the same direction. It's why as we talk about the church that Christ is building, we actually put our priorities on the banners. And you can see them right there. You don't even have to memorize them. They're right there for you. Relationship, discipleship, generosity, and outreach. Those things don't come out of nowhere. Those are the scriptural priorities that God has given his church. And as we focus on accomplishing those things through the power of the Spirit, we find that we're all pulling in the same direction. And then God uses those varied gifts that he's placed in our body to refine and tune and to accomplish those missions. And it's a really joyful thing to see, which we'll talk about in a minute. We have to be able to distinguish between what is good and what God is calling us to. This church was moving with one heart and one mind toward one goal, and they are able to rejoice in that unity. Well, what else does the church prioritize? Does the church prioritize teaching It prioritized unity, and look at the next phrase. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And you say, see, I knew it. Food was biblical. Fellowship around food is biblical. And yes, that's part of it. But what is breaking of bread? Uh, There are a lot of people who come to this passage, and they will conclude that the breaking of bread here means communion, that the church prioritizes the ordinances that Christ gave it. And that is absolutely true. Uh, The church does gather around those things. And communion, uh, celebrating the Lord's table, was certainly something that these people would gather together to do. Uh, But as you look through the book of Acts, that's not the only way that Luke uses this. Um, In Acts chapter 20, Paul preaches a sermon that goes so long and so late at night that a young man sitting in a window falls asleep and falls down three stories and is dead. That is why they only let me preach on the ground floor with closed windows. So, true story. The young man is revived, and Paul, after that, says he goes up, and Paul breaks bread and eats, not in the context of communion at all. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is on his way to Rome for an appearance before Caesar, and the ship that he is sailing on is in the middle of a terrible storm. For 14 days, they are fighting the wind and the waves, and nobody sleeps, and nobody eats. And Paul says, this ship is going to crash, but no lives are going to be lost. And so he encourages the centurion and the Roman soldiers with him to take food and to eat. And in Acts chapter 27, verse 35, Luke writes that Paul took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them, broke the bread, and began to eat. Paul's not celebrating communion with pagan Gentile soldiers. He's eating so that they take heart and that they might be encouraged to eat too. He's looking out for preserving their lives. So if it doesn't mean communion, or at the very least doesn't mean only communion, what does it mean? Well, I think the best way to say it is that this church prioritized community. Not just unity in what they believed, not just unity in their purpose, but this church prioritized community among the believers. Real fellowship, because that's what a meal was. 
But when you shared meals together, it was a sense of fellowship and belonging. Remember when we went through Matthew's gospel back in Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus has a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees absolutely cannot comprehend why that would be. They condemn him for it because to eat a meal with someone shows fellowship. It shows acceptance or at the very least tolerance. As this church was coming together, they were taking their meals together. There was a sense of fellowship among one another. And so where we have a unified and vibrant church, we have this commitment to genuine Christian community. And I know that that is a buzzword that is almost meaningless in our culture. Again, there are pamphlets and videos and uh, seminars that will help you create genuine Christian community. You put it on church websites, come and find authentic community, whatever that means. Well, when we talk about community, a lot of times we're just talking about a people who are like us, or at the very least, maybe a people who like us, and that's community. But we have to understand, biblically, that's not what community is based around. When we're looking at a biblical community, when we're looking at the unity and the community that the church participates in, that the church prioritizes and strives toward, what we see is that biblical community is really centered around those one another commands in the New Testament. More than two dozen commands that define what Christian community is supposed to look like. What does Christian community look like? It's a gathering of people committed to loving one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, admonishing one another, caring for one another, confessing their sins to one another, praying for one another. Again, all of those things that we don't have to guess at. We don't have to wonder when we've achieved community. We don't have to wait until we feel comfortable to call it community. We simply look at what God defines genuine Christian community as, and we pursue those things. We can't build community through activities. We could have a men's barbecue every Saturday, and we would be fat and happy, but that doesn't guarantee community. We can try to craft the most creative ministries, and that doesn't guarantee community. Obedience to what God has called us to develops real, genuine community. We build community through pursuing those things that Christ said would define his people, and that's what these people are committed to. They devote themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread. They devote themselves to teaching, to unity, to community, and one more thing that they're dedicated to, the rest of verse 42. They devote themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The church is a gathering of people that prioritize prayer. And it's not just talking about the church as individuals, it's talking about the corporate body of the church as being a people who are devoted to praying for one another. And it's a universal, well-known fact that if you want to make people feel guilty, you ask them about how much they pray and about how much they spread the gospel. Because we know we're supposed to do those things all the time. We know that Paul said, pray without ceasing. That is the goal of our lives. We're supposed to be a people that pray without ceasing. And yet, I think a lot of us would probably describe our prayer life as anemic at best most times. Well, why is it that prayer has to be so critical? Well, because Jesus said so, and that is true, but why? Why does Christ call us back to prayer? Because prayer reminds us of who we are. Prayer drags us back into the presence of a God who is greater than us. Prayer reminds us of our weakness. When I pray, when, I thinking, when I'm thinking rightly and I pray, I am confronted with the reality that I must go to a source of strength that is greater than mine, a source of wisdom that is greater than mine. And so the church that prays together is constantly being brought back to the fact that we are not enough, 
that our ideas are not enough, that our strength is not enough, but that we can come to a God who is enough, who has called us to a particular function, who has equipped us with the ability to carry out that function, a God who is more than able to do all that we ask and even abundantly more than we ask. A God who has every resource at his disposal, a God who will accomplish his will even through fallen people. Reminds us that we can come to him in every victory, in every temptation, in every failure, and so often we don't even think of what a great privilege that is. That we can come to the God who created and ordered and sustains the universe, every atom in this creation functioning exactly how he tells it to at every moment of every day, and he says, talk to me. And not only speak with him, but knowing that he cares, that he hears that's a remarkable thing. We're a people that are quick to move in our own strength. Being a people that are devoted to prayer consistently moves us forward in his strength. Now here's a place where we don't just want to impart guilt because guilt's not a great long-term motivator. But we do need to ask the question, are we a praying people? Yep. Pray before every meal. Yep. Didn't pray enough for the Dodgers last night. Are we a people who actually pray? Spouses, do you pray together? Parents, do you pray with your children? Do you pray for your children? There's a reason that we pray as often as we do, even in our services, at least in every service, at least four different times, we will pray and we will ask God for his help. There are people that pray before service, there are people that will be able to pray with you after service. People pray on Wednesdays. The elders spend one month, one, one month, wouldn't hurt us, one meeting a month dedicated to prayer. Three times a year between services, we take that time to dedicate ourselves as a corporate body to prayer. And again, this is not to bring guilt forward, but you do need to know that those times when we gather for prayer, this last time when we had prayer walk between services, when 150 people were at church, there were 40 who were here for that prayer walk. I don't have the list. I'm not looking at anybody. But if we are to be a church that moved forward in God's strength and not our own, we ought to be a people that are dedicated not just to private prayer, but to corporate prayer. And I'm praying that we are a people that will become eager to gather. We already gather for food. We got that. We'll gather for ministries. We'll gather for entertainment. We'll gather for music. I want us to be a people that are eager to gather for prayer too. So this church that Christ promised to build has some defining characteristics. There's some consistent attitudes and priorities that aren't just true of this church at this time. They're true of Christ's church through every age teaching, unity, community, prayer. And the wonderful thing that we see even right here is that those simple acts of obedience, none of those are flashy. None of those are even especially creative, but the church that's committed to those things produces some really beautiful fruit. We can see right away what these things produce in the lives of the believers. And the first thing that this produces is a sense of awe. It produces captivated hearts. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
These are a people who live in a constant sense of awe and wonder. Their hearts are captivated by what God is doing. The apostles are doing these signs and wonders, which shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what Jesus said they would do. In John 14, Jesus says, when I go away, you are going to do greater things than these, which sounds wrong, that the, that the disciples would be able to do greater things, more things than Jesus did, but they do the same thing that the signs of Jesus did. They are meant to point to the glory of God. They're meant to point to the power of God. They're meant to point to the truth of the message that they preach. And so they're doing these remarkable things, and the people are in a sense of awe and wonder at all that God is doing. And you say, that makes sense, because if these things were happening, maybe I'd be excited to go to church. Well, we don't have those same signs. We have the Word of God that validates what we say. On any given Sunday, if you want to know whether I spoke the truth to you, you open your Bible and you test everything that I say against everything that is in here, and that is something that you should be doing on a week-by-week -week basis, no matter who is up here. What is there for us to get excited about? What is there that captures our attention and can bring us to that same place of awe? The answer, uh, unexpectedly, is in these same normal things. These same normal practices of obedience can leave us with a sense of awe and wonder, and I can tell you that because it happens. I sit there when Dr. Beely preaches, or when Walter preaches, and I get the same sense of wonder at what God is doing when they open up the Word. I stand up there in the baptismal, and I hear about a high schooler who had no interest in the things of God, and I hear that God radically changed their hearts, and that ought to bring a sense of that same wonder. See, the reality is you and I do get to witness miracles. They're just not the flashy kind that are usually, for, uh, that are usually counterfeited for attention. You and I get to witness the greatest miracle of all, significantly greater than opening blind eyes or restoring withered limbs. You and I get to see the miracle of a dead heart brought to new life in Christ. That is infinitely more difficult than regrowing a limb. More than that, you and I get to regularly see people change. Do you realize we live in a world that says that people don't actually change? That person is who they are. It is what it is. And you either learn methods to cope with that or you cut them out of your life. And the church has the ability to say no. We see people changed and set free. We see people in bondage to lust and addiction, and we see the Spirit come into their life and make these radical changes. We see people really changed, not on their own strength, but in the power of God. And that is a remarkable thing that has the ability to bring us into this consistent sense of awe. It doesn't often take more than sitting and listening to you sing in full voice on any given Sunday for there to be just that glimpse of a sense of awe of what heaven is going to be like. One of the reasons why I sit in the front row is you can hear the voices. There are things around us, not that are flashy, not that we have to seek out, but just in pursuing the normal, ordinary course of obedience that God has laid in front of us that can bring our hearts to this place where they are captivated by what God is doing and have us be involved in this continual sense of awe and wonder. And the second thing that it produces is a common generosity among the people. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
These are people in fellowship and unity, and that led them to think rightly about their possessions. That's what this is. This is a tangible, practical outworking of right thinking about resources. These were the people that recognized that God ultimately owned everything, that they were simply temporary placeholders entrusted with a certain amount of resources for a specific period of time, and so they held them loosely. These were people who got it when Christ said in that Sermon on the Mount that God clothes the flowers of the field. He feeds the birds of the air, and you are much more important, and so certainly God will meet your needs. And so they were content knowing that God would meet their needs to then go and meet the needs of others. And again, think of this context where we are in Jerusalem. 3,000 people are saved. Many of them had come from far away with no intention of staying, but now they had found Christ and a new community, and this was now home. And the body holds their possessions so loosely that they freely give them for the good of others. And it's not the idea that no one owns anything, because they're still meeting in particular houses. It's the understanding that where there's a need, it's immediately met, freely, generously. And there's lots more we could say about that, but the great news is that will be the primary topic in a couple of weeks. So you'll get more on that. The next thing that gets produced is an understanding, a sense of communal joy. Verse 46, and day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day, these people make every effort to be together, and in being together, there's a sense of joy. They're going to temple together, not just for the sake of worship, but for the sake of calling Jews, their brothers and sisters by birth and by blood, to come out from the shadow of the law and to worship Christ. They're drawing day by day, gathering in homes for fellowship and for community. It's a great passage that illustrates the various ways that the church gathers. There are times when we gather together, as many of us as possible, in one building for corporate worship. And then there's also a regular sense where we gather in these smaller contexts, what we call our small groups. But that's a regular, vibrant part of the Christian church, the idea of big church and small church. Church with many and church with few, where we develop intimate relationships and accountability. And as they did that, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You come to Jerusalem for a feast, you find the Savior, and now you start over. And the picture is that those who received generosity were joy, were brought to joy from that. And those that gave and extended generosity were brought to joy with that. The gathering of God's people together should be a continual source of joy in our lives. And you say, have you met God's people? <laughs> I have. But we can be a messy group, can't we? We can be petty. We can be awkward. We can be arrogant. Some of us can be downright odd at times. But there's nowhere that I'd rather be, no people I'd rather be with. You know why? Because we're the same. I can be just as petty. I can be just as awkward. My kids will tell you that I can be just as odd. But we have the same Savior. We both have the same backstory. Very different details, but we both have the same story. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Slaves to sin, now slaves to the Son. We have a common destination that we're all headed toward. We're all headed toward worship, perfect worship in the presence of our Savior. Perfect fellowship between believers forever. It's a remarkable thing. 
And so when I see you, it brings me joy. When I see you working, it brings me joy. When I'm here in my office before church on Sundays and I see people walking around just doing the things, filling the fountain out there, I love watching Dave do that. You know why? Because nobody, nobody knows that he does it. He doesn't do it for you. He does it for God and for you. I love watching people unlock the doors, clean up between services, high-five kids. The thing is, there's no boring act of obedience among the body of Christ. There's no small story of how God is working. And as often as we're willing to share those things with one another, as often as we're willing to interact as a community of believers, there's the opportunity for us to experience joy in that fellowship. And the last thing that this produces, before we close, very beginning of verse 47, praising God. There's a constant worship that this produces. All of these things that move the church toward what the church was built to do, and that is worship. We are called to a life and an eternity of worship, and that is what this church is doing. When they gather, they do it for the purpose of the act of worship. When they obey, they are worshiping. And there's no sense in this where it's an obligation, where we have to do our 20 minutes of worship. Worship is this natural outpouring of seeing what God has done in their lives. That's what the church is. It's a gathering of worshipers who stimulate one another on to further acts of worship. Worship with our words, with our thoughts, and with our actions. And that brings us to kind of the conclusion here, and that, that is, this is a church that is accomplishing the mission. Because the final thing that we see isn't what they're producing so much as what God does because of their obedience. So they're praising God, and look what God is doing. And they're having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A community that demonstrates this kind of love and joy is attractive. Will there be difficulty? Absolutely. Is there going to be opposition? Absolutely. Come back next week, and we start to see what that looks like in the life of this church. But a body that lives out their faith like this is inherently attractive to a world that lives at odds and in competition with one another. And as that happens, the Lord is adding to their number. What's the mission? Make disciples. Go, baptize, and teach. And as this church does that, God fulfills the mission. These are disciple makers who make more disciples. That's the ultimate product of the church. Not the product that the church produces. That's the ultimate work that God does through the church. The ultimate work that God does through the church is not great and beautiful art, although there are brilliant Christian artists in word and in music and in visual media. But that's not the ultimate thing that the church produces. What the church produces isn't great theological works, although there are brilliant theological minds that have written helpful things for the church. What the church produces is not ultimate political change or social change, although there are Christian leaders who have enacted meaningful change in the world around them. What the church produces ultimately are disciples because that is what Christ has promised to do. That as we are obedient to his call, he will fulfill the work of the mission. The church exists to make disciples, and that is exactly what God is pleased to do through his people. Three things for us to think about as we close. First of all, these are our priorities these have to be priorities for the right people. That's a weird way to say it, but when we think about what the church is, when we think about how we order and design church, 
we've got to answer the question, who is our target audience? The easy Sunday school answer is Jesus. I know that. I also know that it's very, very tempting to tailor church to the goal of filling the pews, meeting the budget, engaging and enacting with the world around us. Should we be a church that reaches out? You bet we should. But when we come together, when the church gathers, our priorities are centered around the gathering of believers. Should church be a place that's attractive for non-believers? Should they feel welcome? Absolutely. They should also feel deeply uncomfortable, as should you and I on any given Sunday, by the way. This should be a place that reaches out to the world, that certainly welcomes the world, knowing that we are no better. But this should be a place where our processes, our procedures, our worship is ordered by what God has called us to be, not by what we think will be the most popular or attractive model. Second, the need for community. The fact is we cannot do these things alone. There's no sense biblically where God's people are ever called to a life of isolation. Not even under the law. They were designed to live in community, but particularly in the New Testament, we are designed for community. It's why we read what we read in Hebrews. Don't forsake the gathering together, but instead let us consider how we might stir one another up to love and good deeds. That is one of the functions of the community of believers, is to stir one another up toward obedience. We cannot do these alone. This is why we bring our children along. It's part of the reason why we want to see our children involved and engaged on Sunday mornings in this context so they see what the normal Christian church looks like. Not just so they see what's normal, but so they see the beauty in the normal. So they see the stability in that. Because that leads us to our third thing. There's a blessing in boring. There's a common push, even in the church, to engage the next big thing. I get emails every week. This program will increase attendance by 20%. This app will bump your giving by so many percent. This speaker will draw this many people, which will allow you to do this in your community. And look, lots of those things can be very, very helpful. But the fact is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And there is something to be said for a regular, sustained, committed pattern of predictable boringness, because it's not boring. I'm boring, I know that. It's why I don't ask the kids in this circumstance if they think I'm boring or not. But the, there's a wonder in being able to sing songs that the church has sung for over a thousand years. We have hymns and songs that have been around for that long, why? Because the truth stays true. There's a wonder in getting together with the same people and watching them change as the years go by and being brought to maturity. There's a wonder in seeing new people come to Christ. There's a wonder in doing what the church does without, up to wonder, without having to worry about what the next thing we have to do is. The gospel doesn't need a cultural makeover. The church doesn't need a cultural makeover. The church needs a commitment to the basic patterns of obedience that God has left us with. And we need a commitment to the power of God, not the cleverness of the church that actually changes hearts. Let's pray. Lord, as you've called the church into being, you alone get to decide what that looks like. God, I pray that we would be found faithful and obedient. Lord, help us to be engaged. Help us to pour all of our efforts and our time and our passions into loving you and loving others. And Lord, that will look remarkably different across the different bodies. But Lord, I pray that we are a people that are passionately committed to obedience that at the end of the day, we are absolutely convinced that you save and not us.
that's your gospel that saves and not our powers of persuasion. That it's your patterns of obedience that you've given us that bring stability and encouragement and joy and maturity and fruit and not some creative ministry plan that we've come up with. God, thank you for the regular, ordinary lives of obedience that you've placed in this body. What a remarkable testimony they are to me. I pray that you would encourage us to faithful, sustained, regular obedience as believers. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.